0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you
1: in living color
0: on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
2: Lying on your back in the garage.
3: You can't see a thing
2: except for the clear
3: blue sky. A few cotton-wool
1: clouds.
3: Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. it song. Higher and higher. Like mad,
2: don't they? Kali. Her name means Kal, which is time. She includes everything life and death. She includes hope and hopelessness. She's light and she's dark. There is no part of our human lives that are excluded from her adoration. Anything that we want to cut away, she says, that too is my child. She's so whole, she's so complete. She's that terrifying, she's the fullness of the divine. She's everything the divine is not supposed to be. She's dark, she's dirty, she's angry, she's hungry, she's naked, she's cutting off heads because only the heart can see rightly. And it is time for us to speak from the heart, to rise from the heart, to cut off the head which has been leading us in this direction of madness. And she is furious because her world is almost destroyed. You see Durga, which is the divine feminine in the Hindu tradition. She's beautiful. She's dressed in red in pink, and she's riding in on a tiger. Not unlike the marches of women riding in on pussy riot. We are all in pink and red. So she rides in, there's Shiva and Durga, and they're fighting this battle against the demons of ego, against the demons of greed, against the demons of separation. And they're powerful. However, they begin to understand that every time they wound a great demon with every drop of blood, a thousand more demons emerge. And anyone who knows A malignant narcissist might know something about that and they are realizing that they are losing because every time it appears they're winning more demons arise and so in the last hour and make no mistake we are in the late late hour now from within Durga a deeper, more fierce form of the divine feminine rises from her head and that is Kali and that is the dark mother and that is the force of sacred activism, of broken hearted, tender hearted, fierce motherhood from which we too must rise and she says no, not this time, not my children and she saves the world. How do you like that? The
1: bomb, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct. correct, 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 Good luck. Are you sitting comfortably? Or put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am in the radar. The voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line.
4: Good morning, Lisa. Good morning,
0: Tonio. This morning, my guest is Lisa Weil. You are a teacher advisor mm-hmm. here at Goddard College. I have been for 25 years.
4: Wow. In Goddard's uh, graduate. Initially in the BAMA program. Uh huh. And then it became the MA program, and now it's the Goddard Graduate Institute and this is the individualized masters well i'm that's sort of the part of it that i'm in but we also have social innovation and sustainability mm-hmm. and health arts
1: mm-hmm.
4: and embodiment studies embodiment studies is part of that we, we also break down into concentrations so there's transformative mm-hmm. language arts embodiment studies consciousness studies
0: mm-hmm.
4: and you also just wrote a book mm-hmm. a memoir mm-hmm. I didn't
0: just write it. <laughs>
4: you did, right, you've been working on it for how yeah, long?
0: About 15 years. Well, it just was published. Yeah. And I just read it. Uh-huh. And I And loved. I was a little nervous because, you know, about a guy reading it. Well, it's interesting because I could relate to a lot of it. Really? Which might surprise you. I don't know. You'll tell me what you related to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just loved how you started discovering yourself and found this amazing community. Mm-hmm and yeah. the joy yeah. of that community because yeah. I've had that experience I had that experience probably roughly around the exact same time really? that you did it was a different community yeah but we were having a very similar awakening experience because mm-hmm. that's what it felt it like it was
4: absolutely it's like this very
0: it dramatic powerful awakening exactly. and self discovery yeah and that embodied embo- totally embodied mm-hmm. and expansive mm-hmm. and yes. mind-blowing. What was your community? It was a spiritual community of people who had just done this incredible 40-day intensive training, uh. and then they they realized that they didn't want to return to the quote-unquote real world or uh. the world that they came from. Yeah. So they there were two communities in the country. There was the main community in New York City, and then there was this renegade community out in San Diego for the people who really didn't want to follow anything you know in a, in any formal way they were just and into you were that in the, the magic of this of the self like you were a renegade I was definitely a renegade <laughs> I've always been a renegade so I mean I didn't make the choice I just stumbled upon it huh. so that's that's a lot of what I experienced uh-huh. while I was reading God. in the early part of the book yeah. plus all the experience of passion and falling in love and all those yeah All those tumultuous (laughs) things. It kind of cuts across gendered, isn't it? Yeah, totally. (laughs) And I don't know if everybody experiences things to that degree or not. I (laughs) I suspect not, but I don't know.
4: Well, you know, what I've been saying to people is I'm a fire sign and I'm all fire and air. So I'm sort of constitutionally set up to be this way. I'm a SAG. Yeah. And. What day? It's December 13th. Oh, I'm 11th. Oh, my God, Tonio. Oh, well, that explains everything. <laughs> no, I don't know, but. <laughs> no, but it explains why you were. Those are the two parts. That's a very sad thing to be part of a community like that. Also, because sages were kind of missionaries, and and we would get into beliefs, idealists, I, idealists yeah. too. Yeah, passionately ideal. Passionately, yes, yeah. and that so that, and also we're very driven by desire. Yes, because well, those two things go yeah. together. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: I could so relate to the book, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. It. I mean, I really loved reading it so much.
4: Oh, well, thank you.
0: So yes. As a straight man reading yeah. a, a memoir about a lesbian feminist woman, yeah. I mean, I totally related to I thoroughly enjoyed it. And wow. there was no separation for me. I mean in this community there there were lots of I mean, people were were exploring their sexuality as well. Yeah. And so there were there were no boundaries, there were no limits. We were all over the place. <laughs> so it was it was a time of self discovery yeah. and wild exploration.
4: Yeah. Well one of the things that um when you say no boundaries, no limits I'd qualify that a little bit because, as you notice later on in the book, not in terms of our relationship forms. We were very, very liberated and wanting to explore all different forms of non-monogamy, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, just throw out all those forms. But when it came to embodied experience, there was a split, which actually becomes later on in the book a real issue internally and externally, which is that, you know, I hadn't realized this, but I was in a group with an ideology I had never even named, that I came to understand that what people around me mostly believed is that anything that wasn't, you know, just pure, beautiful, lovemaking, which I think, you know, would go by the name of vanilla, you know, is that, you know, love and sex all combined was a form of patriarchal consciousness that we had to try to, rid ourselves of and then we we ended up kind of coming into conflict with more and more there were feminists and especially lesbians exploring desire and all of its manifestations and that included sm and b and d and we just found all that kind of abhorrent well i never explored it i just agreed yeah that's wrong and then in the book i just trace my growing understanding that it was kind of a lie for me to reject all of that when my own relationships at least in emotional terms had been pretty sadomasochistic (laughs) and then I began to really explore this division between us and them you know the way they saw it and the way we saw it and come to to see that we're all part of one thing and and then I, I could no longer look at those forms of sexual activity in the same way at all I began to see it as genuine experimentation, just like all the other things we'd been doing. It covered a lot of territory there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Should I should I be unpacking some of it? There's something I left out too. I mean, oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, also, I just under, began to see the ways in which righteousness and mm-hmm. and rigidity were, even those of us who did agree with each other. I think they were coming between us as well. Well, that was another thing that
0: was so wonderful to read about your experience of this amazing new community that, that mm-hmm. was congealing together and, and inspiring each other and, and, and awakening together. It was so sad to see the disintegration of that community yeah. where women were getting caught up in these kind of polarized trips yeah. revolving around racism, sexuality,
4: morality, Mm -hmm. things like that. It was everything that really mattered deeply to us, and that's why it tore us apart. And I think it has something to do with the fact that, as far as we knew, we were the first. And as far as I know still, when I look back, I think, we were really originating so much. We were birthing things, and we were so close to, I mean, in a way that people can't even imagine now, we were so close to a world that was totally dominated by men. Mm-hmm. Um, well,
0: the, the way everybody thought. I mean, even women's thinking was dominated. Oh, yeah. I mean, I the most, whole culture, the whole society,
4: our minds. Exactly. Were, Talk about colonization. Yes. I mean, we were completely colonized. And no one can, you know, colonization doesn't anymore mean that. But people can't realize that at that time, that was above all what colonization was would have meant I mean that that we were that men had colonized I mean he still meant everyone the pronoun he was used for everyone and no one even saw that as a problem
1: mm-hmm.
4: and you know rape within marriage was legal until I don't even know when but it I think it still was at the time that things were just starting to I mean in this it, country it, it, in this country I suspect that even down the south at, well, until very
0: recently I wouldn't I would suspect that it still existed to some degree.
4: Well, yeah. Absolutely. And it still does exist around the world, yes. of course. So yeah. So we were so full of discovery and the righteousness goes together, at least for me, speaking for myself, when you just get something and you get that this is behind everything that has caused you pain, you know, just even just to see it, let alone to experience, just to see this kind of insanity and injustice that you've been seeing your whole life. And you finally get why. Then I became righteous, you know, and then you say, oh, I understand this. This is my analysis. And you just don't have time for people who don't get it or aren't on your side. And I think that's how a lot of us were. And I think maybe it goes together with a movement that's just in its incipience. Instead of, you know, we hadn't matured, we hadn't had time to figure out, okay, now what, what do we do with this vision? Because when it comes to vision, I think we saw everything. We really did. Well, you yeah. saw the core. The mm, core that's issue. A, yes, that's great. Yeah, we saw the core of it, and I think that's why we were able to make the connections we did. And to this day, this day where everyone talks about intersectionality, I still, I still don't see that people are getting things in a way that's different. Well, I think it has everything to do with maturity. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time.
0: Because I think we have to experience things on both sides of the fence. And Mm -hmm. there's so many different fences. You talk about intersectionality. We have to cross borders Mm. in order to gain that kind of wisdom and maturity to see different perspectives. Otherwise, we get stuck on one end of a pole and we tend to hang out. I mean, people are becoming so isolationist. We're, we're hanging out in our own personal choirs. That happens as much on the left as it happens on the right. And so it's so easy to get caught up in in righteous indignation and, and not be able to see through it at yeah. all. No ability for self-reflection
4: on right. that. Right. Okay, but I will say that I think that we, just to go back to the intersectionality and crossing borders, I mean, for example, Gloria Anzaldúa was a very important part of this movement that I'm writing about in the book and you know she's the one who wrote Borderlands and so was Audre Lorde in fact this morning I had a dream that I was hugging Audre Lorde and I don't know what that means I thought wow you're going to come in and talk about this something I have done actually you know i We were getting it about racism for the first time. And this is what people have this idea about the second wave feminism, that we were just a bunch of white middle class. Sometimes they say straight women. Okay, maybe the problem is you're not looking about the lesbians, because when it came to the lesbian part of the movement, it was the most mixed group I've ever been a part of. And it's where I learned about classism and racism. It's where I learned about what is now called intersectionality and for me, it was all there in Judy Grant's poem, A Woman is Talking to Death. I think it's the most important intersectional poem ever written, and that was written in 1974. And it's true that some of our thinkers didn't necessarily draw from that kind of experience, but on the whole, the movement was drawing from roots that were not just white at all, and certainly not all middle class. Judy Grant being this amazing working class dyke, and she her writing was as important to me as anyone's. And so I think people don't understand that that's where people like me, who grew up with extraordinary privilege, where we broke out. That's that's how we broke out, because we were part of this. And we got it for the first time. I mean, it was such an education just to be with women like that. And I should say they, they were lesbians, and that's partly what made the exploration so intense. Because at the time, it was as if... I think that's why I had this dream this morning... We were all sort of in love with each other. That's how it felt to me. We were all riding this wave. Maybe you felt like that in your community. Oh, absolutely.
0: Because, but, yeah. And you guys were really breaking out of, of yeah. the mold, of, of we the were. norm. Yeah. And in our community, it was we were breaking out in a different way. But it was
4: the energy, the dynamic, yeah. the passion of it was... The same. It's the same because it's this passion of breaking out. And what I keep saying, and and when I do, when I've been on tour with this book, and when I say it, I see a lot of people in the audience nodding. I said, for the longest time, I couldn't separate my lust for women from my lust for a different world, Mm -hmm. a more livable world. Well, is there a
0: difference? I mean, desire and lust, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just, they're such powerful forces. Yes. And they can be very all consuming they can be so dangerous i mean it's very alive yeah volatile yeah and i think we all experience it in our relationships yeah and we experience how devastating it can be because and you wrote about your experiences of it both in terms of the relationships that you were going through and in terms of the dynamics of what was happening in the community that yeah. you were part of yeah and how wonderful it was and then how painful when things come apart Exactly, and and trying to hold on. That's the thing with desire and lust is that when you try to hold on you get burned. You get burned so badly (laughs) (laughs) and yet there's something about the burn like you talk about the burn Mm -hmm. how you love the burn.
4: Yeah I live for the burn. You
0: live for the burn but not (laughs) Not when, I, not, not when, when it was consuming. Not me. when you're, not when you're so attached to what's burning, well, so that you you get burned.
4: Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, but how do you not? I mean, the burning to me went along with the attachment. I. Well, yeah, and this is an interesting thing that that occurred to me
0: as I was reading this because I'm always writing things as I read, <laughs> and I realized that with every relationship we have, whether it's a relationship with another human being or a relationship with a community or an ideal or, or something that yeah. we're working on, we have to go through a whole new individuation process after the ending or, or a significant change in that relationship. Yeah. Even though we go through an individuation process, it's not a static no. thing that, that holds true and, and informs you for the rest of your life. No.
4: It's like you have to go through the same thing over and over again. You have to die all over again. You know, there's a quote from Saint-Exupéry, and probably no one who's read the book remembers this, but it says in French, to love is to die. You, you you actually <laughs> quote that in the book yeah. somewhere. Oh, you do remember that. Yeah. may c'est mourir. That's what mm-hmm. he says. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my experience, especially in the last one cuz it made me change so much. Mm-hmm. But and that's just what you're saying. And that's what happens.
0: That's why those those intensely painful experiences yeah. are so valuable cuz they they do change us. Sometimes they kill us, but yeah. and that's that's a radical change. Yeah. But we also have the opportunity to be reborn, yes. which doesn't really happen unless we we die yeah. in a way. Yeah, and, exactly. And I think we all have a tendency to avoid change and avoid death and avoid getting really destroyed.
1: <laughs> well,
0: yeah. I mean, we're but and yet that's the that's yeah that's where it that's where all the magic. You're all, such a
4: sage. <laughs> you are. This is the way Sages think, and not everyone understands this. But uh-huh. yes, there's a wonderful poem. Well, that's why I loved this book so much. Yeah, exactly. That helps me understand it yeah. really, because it is a book about dying and becoming. That's that's from Goethe. Good. Goethe was also a sage, and he has a poem Sehnsucht, which means holy desire, mm-hmm. and it's all about you must die in order to become.
0: And yet. The title of it was Holy Desire. Seelige Sehnsucht means Desire. Holy desire. And you've practiced Zen. Yeah. And one of the things that I think that people kind of misunderstand the whole desire issue in Buddhism. Yeah. That most people simplistically get the
4: message that desire is a bad thing. Well, including many Buddhists. I mean, there's, right, mean, exactly. There are many That's Buddhist I mean. centers is, is, in Buddhism. Yes. It's misunderstood. Yes. Mark Epstein wrote a really wonderful book called Open to Desire, which really helped me in writing the book, basically questioning that tenet of Buddhism, which isn't a tenet everywhere, but it is in a lot of places. And then I had just had a wonderful Zen teacher, and of course, I was going to bring it up anyway back then when you talked about if you're not attached, you won't get burned, because it was my encounter with especially this one Zen teacher that began to turn things around for me, and she was so extraordinary, and she... Even though we would chant things because she was very traditional and the setup and the chanting and all of that, but when I would come to see her and talk to her, she would just say, basically, what Mark Epstein's, he had written the book yet. She would just say, "Open to it, experience it all the way, write it, but don't be swept away by it." Which you know, to understand that distinction, to completely experience it without being swept away by it, which is why you know, to sit on the cushion and have a firm. Seat allows you to do that. So I I could say that all those years of Zen just helped me to to find a place to sit in the middle of all of this. It's about presence. It's about finding
0: presence. But in the beginning, people can say presence all you want, but people don't get it. Because that's not something that you get at the beginning. No. In fact... That's something that doesn't come for quite a while. I mean, you can have really powerful awakening experiences, and yet you still don't get a visceral sense of presence until a fair yeah. way down the path.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It takes a long time sitting there. Yeah.
0: So it's really hard to get the importance of not getting swept away. Not getting swept away means mm-hmm. getting lost. Like I remember mm-hmm. in those early days, I would get swept away for long periods of time.
4: I yeah. mean, really long. Sometimes it would be it would seem like it was years, what you mean you're talking about just in your life, yeah, or, yeah, 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 I think I had been pretty much swept away, I mean dissociate I was very dissociative about the stuff, I just yeah. would not allow myself to feel things right because we're we're trying to protect
0: ourselves exactly. from getting hurt because yeah. there's so much vulnerability in this too oh my because God. when you open up, it's like, ah, I know so raw, yeah, and that's that's what and we haven't even mentioned the title of your book which is called in search
4: of pure lust
0: yeah which is a very provocative title
4: mm-hmm. yeah and so obviously trying to find a way to desire that isn't harmful would be part of that but well more than anything it's it's, it's inspired by a book by mary daly feminist philosopher mary daly called pure lust elemental feminist philosophy and one of the women that i fell in love with it's one of the big loves there's maybe five big loves in the book happened to be in a study group i met her in boston and she said you should come visit me in western mass i'm in a study group there and i want you to meet some of these women and it turned out she was living in mary daly's house mary daly wasn't living there yet i realize that most of your listeners haven't even heard of mary daly but I, I hadn't heard of her until reading this book. Oh, my God. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about her because one of the things I thought to myself is if I go on tour, it's going to be a platform and I can talk about stuff that I really think is important. Mm-hmm. She was such an important writer-thinker. And I'm, the interesting thing is that you avoided reading her. I avoided reading her because I would heard her quoted a lot. Yeah. I mean, no, of course, everyone heard of her in those days. She was our philosopher. Oh. She was our philosopher. It uh-huh. was as simple as that doing for us in philosophy what Adrienne rich was doing in the form of poetry but i wanted my stuff to come to me by way of poetry i wanted it understated Mm. and i found hers to be very verbose blah 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 but the fact is i hadn't really given it a serious read so i end up falling in love with this woman who's living in her house and i eventually move in with her and then i end up being part of the study group and they all say you haven't read mary daly and then i start reading her and i am so hooked And it is giving me a way to articulate just about everything that I'm seeing. And it was major. This was major for everyone I knew. And then Mary Daly moved in. And she was writing Pure Lust. It was her house. It was her house. She moved into the loft and back. And she was writing Pure Lust at the time. And all the time that she was writing this book called Pure Lust, I thought, she's writing about this thing that I feel when I fall in love. This incredible experience where you feel like the universe is behind you and all of the fairies are saying, yes, yes, yes. Which is what I really thought Pure Lust was. Well, I come to find out it's not that at all that she's writing about, but whatever. Right. <laughs> I still thought it was a good title. But just to segue a bit about Mary Daly is that what happened is that Audre Lorde wrote a letter to her complaining about gynecology that she had... Which is the title of a book. Which is the title of her first book, Gynecology, The Metaethics of Radical Feminism, which was the first book to show how patriarchy is global and how women all around the globe are... This had never been demonstrated before. So she took us into Chinese foot binding, she took us into genital mutilation in Africa, clitoridectomy. So Audre Lorde was very upset that African women had been included in that chapter as oppressed, but she had not included them among the goddesses. She had stayed with just the goddesses she knew, which were mostly European. And Mary took this in and wrote back, and unfortunately it was never reported that Mary took this in and wrote back, and everyone will know about Audrey Lord's letter, if I'm in a group of young feminists today, everyone has read that. And then I said, have you ever read Gynecology?, the book that Audrey Lorde was writing about, which she wrote because she respected the book so much, no one has read it, because that one letter was enough to make everyone was so sensitized to anything that was racist at the time that it turned people off of the book. I got privy to the fact, this is in the book too, that there was a bunch of white women who raided a bookstore in San Francisco, at night and put little glow stickers on all the copies of gynecology saying, do not buy this book, it's racist. Yeah. And this is at a, a women's bookstore? At a women's bookstore, yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is just to say I brought my copies with me because I don't know if we'll have time. And that's time, an example of passion and in, 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 it is. That's exactly what In the world it is that And, is, that and activism
0: and how misguided not, exactly. Yeah. And that's that's just from a lack of of perspective and maturity and oh my God yes, yeah. which I was on our side as well yeah, and
4: everybody all of us. <laughs> yeah. I mean none of us are immune to it exactly. Yeah. So. Um, I persist in thinking that Mary Daly was one of the most important thinkers, feminist thinkers ever, and that her books have actually grown in importance if people would just look at them. I mean, gynecology begins with these words. This is an extremist book written in an extreme moment in history, a time when we are threatening all species on earth with extinction. This was written in 1978. Gynecology is written in 1978. And the other thing she wrote in Gynecology, which I think applies really beautifully, In the land of the fathers, the more blatant the lie, the greater its credibility. For it is then most consistent with the general pattern of bizarre beliefs. And that's what's becoming true all over again. So much of what she has written is becoming true all over again. Only it's truer now, Mm -hmm. and it's more lethal now. And it's more absurd
0: mm-hmm. and insane the, radical,
4: the absurdity gets bigger the lies get bigger all of it and I really believe people should be reading Mary Daly now she's yeah. their clarity and would that apply to men as well oh yeah uh-huh. oh she had many male fans tons of them actually uh-huh. it wasn't just women her analysis of what's happening is not just for women it's just she's seeing through she was so disgusted you know this is the year, she said this in 1986, this is the year of Chernobyl. And you are worrying about that. You know, somebody had some question that was about something that she didn't... <laughs> you know, I mean, we should be disgusted. We should be outraged, you know. That, I really value that, that she sustained that outrage at mostly men. I mean, she saw it as, mm-hmm. you know, and of course women have been complicit, are doing to wreck this beautiful world. This beautiful and that's planet. not to say that there
0: aren't women who are very masculine and male in the way they relate in the world.
4: But the fact is, is that, you know...
0: It is a male-dominated society. It's
4: a patriarchy, so...
0: It's been thoroughly colonized.
4: And it's now, I mean, I think it's visible now in ways that it hasn't been for a long time. It's Mm -hmm. all coming out.
0: Right. As we get closer and closer to that extinction point.
4: Yeah, and as our lives are held in the balance by a bunch of very powerful egomaniacs... Who don't want to
0: give up any of their... Toys, yeah, trinkets, yeah, exactly. Piles of money, which they have no need for. No, no, it's it's insane. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm talking with Lisa Weil mm-hmm. She's the author of this wonderful new book, "In Search of Pure Lust." And so maybe we could go back to your childhood, where all this started, because a lot of this started very early for you. Um, well... There's a few things here. You fell in love with one of your teachers. Oh, that started early. But you had, you had a very interesting relationship with your father, which I yeah. thought was very interesting. Yeah. And that juxtaposed to your relationship with your mother. Yeah. Would you like to talk about... Yeah, well, one yeah.
4: thing that actually the book is kind of about, too, is that, and I think it's part of my own perspective about what went wrong, because something I should say is that as I wrote the book, the world that I was writing about was clearly in the process of disappearing. And now it's almost entirely gone. So in many ways, this is a requiem for a movement. And a lot of people would say, Oh, it's you know backlash, it's co-optation, it's big bookstore chains, blah, blah, blah. And I think it is all those things, but it also was internal. And I really wanted to understand what it was. And one of the things that I began to realize is that it's connected to what I said earlier about it being a very young movement. We sort of had to be in rah-rah mode all the time, and there wasn't much going back. There wasn't much looking at childhood wounds, for example. You know, this woman that I fell in love with who lived in Mary Daly's house, Grace, she didn't believe it. You know, we we had a joke that we would make about bringing things up. Which ends up being the title of a later book when I'm seeing a shrink, right? Because <laughs> we had these neighbors who were always—they felt it was important to bring things up every day—and Grace would stick her finger in her mouth whenever we talked about bringing things up, and we'd laugh. And then, boy, did we ever pay for that, you know? You have to bring things up. You—you you have to go back, and you know. And another way of talking about that is the shadow. You know, you have to look at the shadow, which is something we really just didn't do. So, yeah, we still don't do in this culture. No, no, no! not in the culture at all, but uh, very much we do in cultures that I'm a part of now. Right. It's really important. And in that
0: community that I was a part of. That was actually the first step in it, was telling our stories. Uh, telling all our deepest, darkest, really, most secret stories. That's how we... That's how the community began. I mean, that's how it all began, oh, well, that's began because we were revealing everything about ourselves so that we could actually <laughs> open up ourselves to receive being wow. loved. Because until you let yourself be seen fully, yeah. you cannot experience love. Wow, this is very advanced. I'm impressed. Well, you talk about this in your I, book as I well. I do,
4: yeah, but I only came to this much later when I realized what... Well,
0: I experienced it directly very early, but it took me my entire life to integrate all of this. Uh-huh. So it's not like I got okay, it all I see. and it yeah, yeah. all done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We still okay. have to yeah. go through the whole process. Yeah, that's true. Like, it reminds me of the path of the Tarot. You, know, you start out as a fool... At the beginning, and you have to go through all these life experiences. And someone may tell you all the secrets about yeah. what you're going to go through, but until you actually go through that's it so and, and go through and burn and die <laughs> over and over again, and get <laughs> crucified and and just get destroyed <laughs> repeatedly in so many different ways, I
4: think that that's a really good tarot card for me in this book. I think that's exactly. And then how you it, come
0: back to realizing that yeah. you're just a fool. But now you've experienced yeah. all the stuff that reveals to you that you're just a fool.
4: That's a beautiful summary of the book. It's the story of a fool. <laughs> I, I mean, it really is. Like, people keep saying to me, what, you didn't get it? I mean, after three or four times, you still weren't getting it? No, I didn't. I went back into the fire over and over. That's the power of desire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, none of the people who say this is sad. And it's a beautiful
0: thing. It's so important because without the desire, we'd never have the impetus to learn
4: anything. That's grow, right, right, exactly. So, desire is so And that's critical. why also sages are just learners to their core, aren't they? We just can't get enough. Well, I know that about myself and oh, obviously oh, yeah. about you. Oh, yeah, discovery, that's it. And at one point, I, I have this insight that it is falling in love and desire are the same thing as discovery of Knowledge. It's right. getting new knowledge. That oh oh oh, falling in love it's with the world. Sound you make when you're you're coming. Yeah. Oh, it's like yes, I'm getting something. Yeah. You know, for me, it's all about that. Yeah, something is really coming to me. You know.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm opening up to receiving more. Yes. <laughs> My container is getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. expanding. Yeah. To receive more, not expanding because I'm more powerful, but because I can receive more. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Yeah. But the, the hard part, you know, the part that we didn't do so much about really was going back to the wounds. And so that's, to go back to your question about childhood, I didn't do that at the time. But yeah, in the book, I felt it was important to talk about, you know, the, the mother wound, the father wound. But I never leave it at that because when astrology is really important in the book, too, and I, I meet this astrologer who is actually Caroline Casey, whom you interviewed. Oh. You didn't know that. Nila is is Caroline Oh, because okay. she was a student at Brown and... I'd never heard of astrology. and Well, I had heard of it, but I just thought it was so stupid. You know, astrologers, you know, how people feel about it. So then she invites me to her place for a reading, and I feel like I'm totally unveiled. It's the first time I really see myself and understand things about myself I never got. So then I understand that, you know, it's not all about historical causality, you know. The stars, you know, what you came into the world with really matters too. So, But, yeah, you do have to go back to the wounds. And sometimes that's even in your astrological chart. There are astrologers who can see the wounds in the chart, too. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of the wounds are archetypal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and mine definitely had a lot to do with my mother and blah, blah, blah. you Because know, she was pretty much absent, withholding, that kind of thing. And dreams are really important in the book. And the very first dream I have about Doris Day because I start seeing this shrink three times a week and <laughs> and he, I have to bring in dreams because if I don't bring in dreams I'm going to have to free associate. Feel free to,
0: feel free to tell the dream if you like.
4: I'll tell the dream so I brought in this dream and I, he kept saying oh your dreams, are." I forget the word he used but he was very impressed by my dreams and this one, I see Doris Day wending her way along the road. I know she's just given a talk at a conference on aging stars and she looks just the way I expected her to look and I think, oh, I wasn't at the conference but I'm sure she'll like it if I come up to her and give her a compliment, so I do and she snubs me she just whips around and snubs me and I find myself kneeling on the ground feeling like a groveling fan and fumbling for my cigarettes and the pack is empty So, so my shrink says were you breastfed? and it's just like Classic cycle. I mean, this guy had a pipe and a picture of Signum and Freud, and I lay on a couch. It was that traditional. But I said yes. And he scribbled. And then I completely dismissed this. And when I originally wrote it, I thought I was writing it from the point of view that it was ridiculous. But now I think, yeah, he had a point. (laughs) There was something going on there because my mother was very beautiful. And sort of had this, I don't know, not diva-like, but just like she. everyone said, oh, she looks like Marilyn Monroe kind of thing. So that was clearly her in the dream. And then that dream comes back over and over again throughout the book. You know, this the rejection thing. And then looking for the cigarettes, because I was always smoking in those days. And then there was a clear link between, you know, I would have to find a cigarette. And then there's a seduction scene that all plays out because this woman is smoking, on the Staten Island ferry, and you're not supposed to smoke. And I'm smitten by her, and then I end up sitting next to her, and then I light up a cigarette too. Anyway, there's this whole theme that plays throughout about cigarettes and women and and ultimate rejection. And there is a <laughs> breastfeeding connection. I guess you know that I thought that I, I can
0: make because I, <laughs> I knew someone in this community who was a smoker, and she wanted to quit. Yeah. And the person she was working with told her to just get a baby bottle, fill it with you know, something to drink, and every time she gets the impulse to smoke to just suck on the baby bottle.
4: Oh, yeah, well, I think there could be some truth there. <laughs> she said it really worked. Yeah, So, <laughs> so anyway, let's just suffice it to say I did go back, and I did do that work, and I feel like it is really important. And I think that if there was one way in which <laughs> what I've come to think is that we just didn't we didn't know how to embody what we saw yet, and that it takes a huge amount of work to embody yeah, what it is you see yeah. I
0: mean,
4: when you, what you're seeing is so radical and
0: and there's so many layers to it. it's like it's like an onion to the
4: nth degree. Yeah, yeah, which pretty much takes our entire lives to unravel. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. So, it's very interesting that I now teach embodiment studies, which feels right, which is feminism, but in a different way, because it doesn't start with the idea. You know, when you hear feminism, you think of an idea. When you hear embodiment studies, there's no idea in there, there's no activist angle in there. And so, it's about everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And so, should feminism be too. So, I call it embodiment studies. Well,
0: embodiment is about connecting with our bodies, with the earth, with being grounded. And the male thing is very abstract and intellectual
4: and tangential. Absolutely. So that's why I say embodiment studies is now, because it's got the same philosophical underpinning of understanding that the body has always been rejected or relegated to inferior status in favor of abstraction and... Spirit divorced from body, etc.
0: And it's so easy for us human beings to be seduced by the illusion of our outer appearance that, you know, a man yes. is a man and a woman is a woman. Mm. And yet we're actually combinations of the two inside ourselves huh. to different degrees and different ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And to reject a part of ourselves or to not recognize a part of ourselves really just hurts. Cheats ourselves. We we miss out on so much. We miss out on ourselves. Yeah, which it would be the ultimate self crime or self
4: tragedy, disowning parts of ourselves.
0: Yeah, Yeah. not recognizing parts of ourselves. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah.
0: Just because nobody, in some initiatory or informative way, told us about that. Yeah, or, or communicated that in some meaningful way. Yeah, that's so true. You could learn it through physical activity, like dance or movement, or, huh. or some kind of physical embodied practice, yeah. without words.
1: Yeah. In
0: fact, that probably works better, but, uh, <laughs>
4: <laughs> but every bit of help we can get. That's so true, and you know, and that was the initial impulse for consciousness raising when there were these consciousness-raising groups uh-huh. everywhere in the 70s, that this was just women. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly because women would go around and speak from their body, bodily experience. This had never happened. And that's how they understood that when, when you heard another woman say, oh, you've also experienced that, then it would become real to them, just what you're saying in a way it hadn't been. Mm-hmm. But feminism really moved away from direct drawing on bodily experience. It did become much more abstract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where the conflict is. Exactly. Arose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And
0: a lot of the women in this community were highly educated <coughs> and well read, so it was very easy to go in those directions.
4: Yes. Well, I should say that's just me probably too. The you know, cuz I tended to be in academic settings. Mm-hmm. But not always. So, it wasn't true for everyone. Mm-hmm. And also when I was at the Women's Writers Center, which is this amazing institution where I got to study with Adrienne Rich for a week, and Olga Brumas for a week, Rita Mae Brown for a week, and Muriel Ruckheiser had been there the year before. It was amazing. That was a very non-academic place, and there, you know, I met a woman who was pumping gas. I mean, this is is where I started to meet the kinds of women I would never have met if I just stayed on my academic. Right. I would
0: love to hear you talk about how you discovered, how you encountered this community and through the lesbian
4: be- connection there's a, <laughs> a monthly rag that still exists called the lesbian connection mm-hmm. and at the time I subscribed and it just came like it's like a newsletter and I just saw this thing women's writers center you know and I was a grad student at brown but it named the women who were going to be visiting faculty and I knew I needed to write and I just thought okay I'm going to apply and I just did and it totally changed my life completely Another interesting thing about your story is that
0: even though you experienced loving women as a child, it took you a while mm-hmm. to acknowledge that as you were getting older.
4: Mm-hmm. Because I had this thing where the women that I fell in love with were all straight. Ah. They were all in love with men. And this mm-hmm. happened over and over again, so I just thought, that's it. You know, no possibility. Yeah. And I also have always had great relationships with men, so I had boyfriends. I liked sex, you know. I enjoyed it all. But I remember just always whenever I got stoned with my boyfriend, that's when I would start having these thoughts about women and realizing it was a different order of experience, what I felt for women. And so then that happened on the Staten Island Ferry to take us back to that smoking experience because this woman was, you know, looked like the kind of woman I always... (laughs) I was always attracted to very... Classically beautiful straight women. Well, That changed, too. This Be, is like and a, this relates to your mother. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's, uh, a, there's
0: a role that your father plays in this, yeah, too. Oh,
4: well, my father was always bringing home these women that he would just fawn all over and uh, supply them with drinks in his bar and seduce them and charm them. And I just... I imitated. You know, like, he was my mentor. That mm-hmm. was it, yeah, yeah. And
0: kind of a, a conspirator. <laughs> well, at times
4: I thought, yeah, because he would... Bring home my teachers, the ones I w- had crushes on. And he, and he always knew which ones knew. I had crushes on. And he knew that and he you had this he would bring them crashes. to the apartment. Yeah. And at the time, I thought, oh, my God, am I recruiting for him? Or is he, which is which? What's going on here, you know? And then he would charm them, and then they would come back. It was a very strange but thing. But he would also, at the same time, he would give you this kind of knowing look. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Totally. So it wasn't like he was trying to steal from you. He was like...
4: Well, only he, later did I wonder that. At the time, I just thought, yeah, he just wants to get a rise out of me. He'll do this because uh, he know. I don't know. It was also just love. He knew that I and loved... And you were a child. Yeah, I was a child. I was, uh, you know, in first to fifth grade, let's say, this happened. Mm-hmm. He sent me off to the opera with my French teacher, Miss Easton, in fifth grade, with instructions for what to buy at intermission. And I was... <laughs> Is this some kind of vicarious trip? Of <laughs> yes, his? that's the thing. I started to wonder that later if it was, you know. Because he was in a marriage and he couldn't partake himself. No, he was. That wasn't a great marriage. He was not. He didn't feel that way about my mother. That's for sure. That's why later on I wondered: was I but he? But she was him?
0: beautiful, so he he aspired to that.
4: Yeah, but she was kind of cold. That's yeah. the thing. You know. And for you as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: One big early wound. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Should we read something? Sure. Do you want to read chapter 52, In Defense of Desire? Yeah, tell me why you wanted me to read this one. Well, when I was reading it, I was like, this is so juicy. This is incredible. She's got to read this. <laughs> really? Okay. I knew it at, at, while I was in the middle of reading. I was just Great. like, and then. It's because you're a Sag, and it's in defense of desire. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, I remember thinking, wow, this is almost like a condensation of the whole book, almost.
4: Hmm.
0: Obviously, it's not just a condensation of the It's such a powerful. Well, thank you. It's and just... It's three pages in the book, so it's short. But and, are you sure
4: we have enough time for this? Oh,
0: totally, of Okay, course. so... Well, um, before you start, I just will announce that this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio, The Magical Mystery Tour. I'm here with Lisa Weil. She's a goddard teacher advisor in goddard's graduate institute and she just came out with this amazing new book i mean truly wonderful wonderful new book in search of pure lust
4: so this it's called in defense of desire and that's because it's just come after a series of chapters where i've just been demonstrating you know desire's fallibility that it's you know i used to think it was a guide and then It proved itself such an unreliable guide. And it's not sustainable, after all. And our communities had fallen apart. But then I thought, wait a minute, that's not the whole truth. So that's where this... And I'd been sitting zazen in an effort to not sweep it away, but to sit with it and not act on it. And also not to get swept away yourself. Exactly. So it starts with a quote from Mary Daly's Pure Lust. Pure lust is in its essence astral. It is pure passion, unadulterated, absolute, simple, sheer striving for abundance of being. We used to talk about desire as the original, if not the ultimate, creative force. From our desire for women, all of the desires flowed. Above all, the desire for a world in which women would be not marginal but central, and in which all life on earth would be honored and protected. From lesbian desire, and those words are in caps, <laughs> flowed not only the desire for such a world, but the energy to bring it into being that flame in our center, the blazing thing that moves us out beyond where we would have thought possible. For days on end, for weeks even, we can do without food or sleep, our energy is boundless, and it's erotic energy I'm talking about here clearly, right? We climb the twisting path through the woods, by the giant moon through the trees, oh light of revelation, how wondrous we are amidst the infinite shapes and sounds of creation, how moonlight becomes us. This is a riff on a earlier chapter where we were so appalled to realize that the song moonlight becomes you actually didn't mean that moonlight was becoming you it meant it's flattering to you Mm -hmm. that we were so appalled but so here it's how moonlight becomes us integrity the word that's made flesh that night simply simply to allow a life to spring from this moment to allow life to spring from it as already it has been all spring unbelievable the green wet pulsing never-endingness of living life to protect, above all, to live in such a way as to protect not just her and this love, but these trees and all this green growth, this real world we are knowing now, loving now, as if for the first time. We used to talk of desire, our desire for women as the most powerful force in the universe, our particular gift to the world. Yet desire flags when we are fondest, most trusting, rears its head when we're estranged, Serves as conduit for childhood wounds. This awful pull in me towards no. Gets mistaken for love, though so often at odds with it. Sitting zazen hour after hour, day after day, you watch it burn off like fog. One moment it's the element you live and breathe. Desire is all you see. You stand poised, quivering at the lip of possibility. Then the pulse slows, fever breaks, vision clears. You see her now, absent the fog, as the mere mortal she is. As she is, not as you have wanted her to be. Some would say this is the beginning of love. But wait, the she who I apprehend, she who is capitalized because it's a Judy Grant poem that comes up quite a bit in the book. You know, she and all her greatness, capital she who, I apprehend through the eyes of desire, shot through with moonlight, gateway to infinity. Is that also... Not what is? Is she not also goddess, even if it can't be sustained, even if I play a role in its demise? Bella's bigness, her visionary power, Grace in all her graciousness, her ethical fervor, Helen's poetic intensity, her pagan wildness. I am, after all, a lesbian. I dwell on possibility. I don't want to give up on pure lust, that unadulterated, absolute, simple, sheer striving for abundance of being, any more than I want to give up on my desire for a world wholly other than the insanely life-denying, patriarchal world we all inhabit now. And why should I? Why not see women in ways that accord with the highest intuitions we have about ourselves? Why not fall in love with our most evolved, most powerful selves? Simply this... We fall from grace, often spectacularly. She is not who I thought she was, Wails the lover betrayed, though in this she's not entirely right. And in a matter of months, if not weeks, either she or her lover has bailed. The dream unravels, stars come unaligned. A life of integrity? How easy it was to imagine back then, before I came to know us, as the slag heap of conflicting impulses, needs, desires we are myself above all, before the years of feuding, accusing, undermining, attacking. Integrity, the word sounds quaint now, abstract, refuses to flesh out. We're left with jagged pieces that won't mesh. Perhaps this is the fate of us uppercase lesbians. As beings who, it seems, were put on earth to practice astral striving, to soar on the wings of desire, perhaps we are doomed to fall and to fall hard doomed to get caught over and over in the gap between who we are and who we want to be, between the world as it is and as we ache for it to be. No wonder we ripped each other to shreds at those conferences. No wonder our collaborations fell violently apart. We wanted things to be different, wanted it so desperately we rode roughshod over each other to get there, foregoing kindness, respect, even friendship. How easy it is now to look back at us, we desiring lesbians of the 70s and 80s, and see only the quarrels, the betrayals, the fallings out. For those of us on the inside who expected nothing less than the world from each other. How difficult not to get stuck there. I am speaking of myself here, of course. Myself and this book you hold in your hands, this tale of broken forms, so awash and lost. How easy to forget, especially now that it's all but vanished, that we did create a world together, a culture of resistance. Those of us who weren't writing poems or essays or fiction, making films, art, videos, music, or founding journals, coffee houses, bookstores, art galleries, theater companies, hosting book fairs and conferences and festivals. Together we managed to give a shape to our needs, our values, our longings, to give weight and heft to our dreams. How can I not marvel at all the possible we brought into being? Especially today when our cultural networks, our meeting places, our bookstores, book fairs, music festivals, magazines, newspapers have almost all disappeared. When hardly any presses exist anymore to publish our work. Even as the forces against which we struggled then despoil more and more of what we held precious. Even as the poisons extend their reach. How can I not love us for our wanting, our desiring, our aspiring? And in honoring the glorious soaring, how can I not forgive the ignominious crashing, my own included? Desire is not a practice. It does not teach patience or sustainability. It does not teach kindness or understanding. Whence comes kindness and whence understanding? From pain. My instinctual answer the pain of losing what is most precious. And yet, desire, deep desire, is the motor of transformation, what makes the possible, possible.
0: So, looking back on some of this, how do you feel about these things that have
4: transpired? Um, Sad. (laughs) It's. And also the people that... Sad, because most of the people I'm writing about, I'm not in touch with anymore. I can't talk to them about it. And I don't know, they're probably appalled by the things I've written about them. There's just so much heartbreak in this book that, you know, it's it's a book about heartbreak, among other things. On the other hand, it just feels really good to have really, you know, it's, it's just to have made sense of that whole part of my life and to have documented what I did document that we've lost. You know, I'm really glad I did that, you know.
0: And it's informed your life, in such powerful ways.
4: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I am.
0: And led you down
4: other paths along yeah. the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Goddard feels like a continuation in many ways of that journey. Right. The experience of these residencies Absolutely. sounds very much like the yeah. experience
0: you had discovering this community.
4: And I, you know, and I used to say, I mean, I never was part of the residency as a student but as a faculty your stuff comes up and that's exactly what happened for us constantly the residencies do that goddard the whole structure of goddard does the same thing for you
0: and that's what life does too yeah
4: but i should also say that i wrote the book while i was you know within the 25 years i've been teaching here and i'm not sure i would have written it had I not. you know i just learned to be a creative being here so just by osmosis maybe because everything I was telling my students, because I've had so many writing students, and I've never done an MFA program or anything like that, I just took my own advice a lot, and just to be in this atmosphere. And you you
0: actually got to hang out and live
4: with and be in relationship with
0: a lot of the women who were your greatest mentors.
4: Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, like Judy Grun, who blurred this book, that was such, to me, the greatest honor, because I've been in awe of her work for 40 years and back then, in my 20s, if you'd ever told me someday you would write a book and she would blurb it, and I said, no way. Absolutely no way. But it
0: is, <laughs> or it was, a, a fairly tight-knit group. I mean, you all
4: knew each well, other. Well, not necessarily in person, but you read each other because right. we had a print network. Yes. you know? Talk about that. You know how hard it was for me to get this book published. There is no femi- there is one feminist press left. Well, there's two. There's Aunt Lute that I know of in the U.S., Aunt Lute and the Feminist Press. And they each have agendas, and my book didn't fit into either. Back then, we had uh. dozens, and we had dozens of feminist newspapers. So it's really been a struggle to find a place to get this book reviewed now. It would have instantly been reviewed in at least 40 places, 20 years ago even. And it's just the loss of a print culture, basically. Not to mention music for people in music, or you know, it's just same in different media. But in print, someone who's always been about publishing and has herself been a publisher, because you know, I've been an editor and a publisher
2: and for a translator. That
4: was my main thing. Mm. So it's that's really hard to realize that we, you know, we don't have a place to publish feminist reviews much, <laughs> you know. And those places that do, they. They are generally full up, or they have some particular agenda, and your book has to fit into it. You're currently
0: doing a journal, Dark Matter, y- yeah, which is subtitled Women Witnessing. What is that, and how is that involved yeah, you might from, say I, from well, what you've, what you, because you you founded. You created Trivia, which was a journal of ideas. It was a, a radical lesbian yeah. feminist yeah, journal. Yeah, and
4: that book is, I mean, that the creation of that journal is part of what goes on in the book. But you might say I went full circle from, you know, being suppressing the shadow to realizing darkness is where everything happens. And, so wait a minute. Yeah. Early on in this journey, you were suppressing... I'm how- saying as part of this group of feminists who were, as I say, just so much about wanting to recreate the world, in our vision of things in an
0: idealized way yeah
4: that we felt it was a waste of time to bring up personal stuff you know and so i i think that's suppressing the shadow because when you look at personal Mm -hmm. stuff you're going to look at your shadow Mm -hmm. and there was a shadow side to our movement too that we didn't look at
0: right which erupted violently
4: (laughs) in our faces yeah And you know, and I think it's possible to say all that without in any way discrediting taking away from how amazing the movement was. I just wish we could have kept our structures. Well, it's and still these things, it's still
0: evolving. It's still evolving. I mean it's not a yeah, done no. deal.
4: Uh, yeah. It's just that we did have this world that of course it's just part of it is technology. You now we won't have that world again. But I just wish we had more media, you know. We, then we had so much. But yes, yeah, so now I'm publishing dark matter women witnessing, and it's about what we're doing to the earth, and its dreams are very important, and visions, and communications with non-human beings, Which and income- the power of witness also, uh-huh. It's just because I think it's something very difficult for us to do right now, to really look at what's happening.
0: And our role
4: in our relationship? And our role in relationship to it, both of them, although now that it's getting so we can't not look away, this orca who is parading her calf around the last Ten days, was it? You didn't know about this orca whales, a member of the southern residents who were going extinct. The mama orca was swimming around with her dead calf, who lived only, I think, a half an hour. And she did this for ten days, and she herself in a state of exhaustion because they don't have enough food, and they are going extinct. And she was clearly doing this as a way to say to us humans, look, look yeah, so that bearing witness to this feels right now, for me, it feels like the most important thing um, to do. And there's obviously a direct line between this and what what the book is all about, but it's not quite the same. It's less personal. Mm-hmm. And in the summers, you I have um, yes, dreams again. Dreams um, again I've been offering yes. since since working with Dina Metzger which I started to do in 2004 when Bush was re-elected and I was in a state of despair. I found this book, The Ghost River, by Dina Metzger, which is really about story and dreams and vision. And I started doing writing intensives with her. And we start every morning with dream work. And I was inspired by that. And since 2005, I've been offering weekend retreats that center on dream work for writers up north of Montreal. So
0: talk about this dream work and writing about dreams and what yeah, what's that? It's what that's really about important in
4: embodiment studies too, because I think right now the most important knowing is I won't say unconscious because that sounds on you know non is nonconscious, which is the knowing that it feels to me like is the most important for the sake of what's happening to the earth, is coming in the form of dreams, and communications that we really have to shut off the rational mind. To discern. And I know this from having been with people who are able to communicate in ways I can't with the non-human realm. And also from just getting and publishing so many dreams that are so full of information that we desperately need about the sources of life that we need to be turning to and the things that we need to be turning away from. It's remarkable. We talk about this a lot in embodiment studies that perception itself is largely a non-conscious act. That we think that everything. Or it's a we, non-intellectual thing. Yeah, but it's also a lot of it is not on the conscious. You know, what we're we're picking stuff up all the time that we're not.
0: Well, we're so used to focusing all of our consciousness into our intellect. Yes, I think that's one of the issues, and that yeah. we're not well practiced in being present in our bodies and in exactly. all the other ways of knowing That's right. that are available to us. That's right. That are sometimes given this simplistic term, sixth sense, which people who have more experience mm-hmm. with this say way more than way sixth, sixth sense, sense is, is...
4: so reductive. So reductive, exactly, and so I limited. Mean, dark Matter was... The title came from the fact that As far as scientists know now, dark matter is the animating substance of 85% of the universe.
0: Well, I thought they were saying it's 94 percent. That's if you combine it with dark
4: energy. And that they have no idea what it is. Right. And I just love that. Because I think the unknown, it's also the one thing that gives me hope. Because Mm -hmm. if you just look at what we know, it's Mm -hmm. not looking good. Right. But what we don't know as humans, and I learned this from not from the whales, especially when I took a trip to see the whales. I was there with them for two weeks, and the blue whales, who are the largest mammals on the face of the earth, and then the gray whales, who know forgiveness, as I don't think any human bodhisattva has come anywhere close. What I learned from them is how little we know, how clueless we are as humans. So I just believe that you know, trying to access what we don't know is one of the most important things we can do. Mm-hmm. now as humans
0: yeah i just recently had um parker palmer on the show and he was talking about i mean he's he's approaching 80 years old he has so much experience in this world and he was talking about our human frailty and you know having humility in the face of our yeah human frailty and yeah. how little we actually know yes. and that the more we learn the more we realize little, little, little we know. So true. And even the things that we know or think we know keep changing. Yes. Continually. Exactly. I mean, everything we think we know gets overthrown by a new awareness of what is. Yeah. That's so true. Which, if we were to actually stop and reflect on that, should reveal that we know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In fact, we know less than nothing because we have to Unravel everything we think we, we know
1: mm-hmm.
0: in order to even be back at square zero. You know, present yep. in this where we are.
4: But our bodies are pretty reliable in that way. That's the thing. If we come back to them exactly. and pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
0: Which yeah. is so hard to do in this world, which Very is all hard. about distraction and and outer
4: absolutely frills. So true.
0: And information.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Information. Information. As if information was. So important and so valuable.
4: I sometimes think information is what's killing us. (laughs) It feels like it. It does seem that way. It's overwhelming all the time and it's deadening our brain cells and it's deadening our whole embodied being. And it's misleading because information is never gonna give us and I and I do think that's another reason just to come back to the nineteen seventies, why our vision was so sharp and clear no matter what kind of mistakes we made I will continue to say that a window opened then and the vision has never been as clear since and I think it's partly because there was less distraction in the way of information mm-hmm. and information technology but information is valuable it's just how we relate yeah. to it and that's
0: the new challenge yeah. that's the new journey of maturity Yeah, in this crazy world yeah <sighs> <laughs> and it is a crazy world But it's still a wondrous, amazing, mysterious place.
4: Oh, there's so much mystery. I am actually more in love with the world than I've ever been. I don't know if it's related to how precarious. I think it must be. But I see more mystery all the time. Yeah, I think that
0: comes as we get older and more experienced. But it also comes as we realize our mortality. Yeah,
4: yeah. Individually
0: and collectively. Yeah, yeah. And being able to stay present with that without losing ourselves in despair, yeah, I mean despair is a valuable thing, but to get lost in it or get swept away with it is just as dysfunctional as getting swept away
4: by anything else. Well, I mean, I certainly don't despair by the fact that I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. When I see friends die young, that can do it.
0: Or an orca whale. But an orca whale has hurt
4: that is, and knowing that it's a species going extinct, that is just, it is hard not to. And that's a real practice as a Zen person. That is a real practice to sit with that. Embodying grief. Yeah.
0: And not losing oneself exactly. in that process. Yeah, Not becoming enraged or insane. Yes. Staying sane Yes, in the midst of the insanity.
4: Right. And not being swept away by grief either, because grief too can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to sit with all of it. That's that's the bearing witness part.
0: Mm-hmm. Being with the shadow. Yeah. Embodying the shadow. Yeah. Embracing the shadow.
4: Yeah. There's a Roshi, Joan Sutherland who talks about endarkment. Yeah. And it's beautiful the way she talks about it. And I hadn't heard it when I came up with the title Dark Matter, but it's exactly what inspired that title. It's just she talks about the dark as the ultimate crucible of everything. And, you know, if you resist the darkness, it is it is resisting life itself. Right. The, the creative void, the, the yeah. womb, is dark. Yes, it is.
0: Everything emerges out of the darkness. Yeah. Even light emerges out of the
4: darkness. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And Rebecca Solnit has written a lot about that, too. You know, that she talks about the, we make love at night, and conception happens mostly at night, and dreams happen. I mean when you think of it it's like the most important creative acts maybe happen in the dark yeah
0: <laughs> the essence of creativity yeah at the beginning of the book you quote the Buddha It mm-hmm. it is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love we will develop love we will practice it we will make it both a way and a basis take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. I quote that underneath another quote about desire from Jovette Marchessault, who's a Quebec feminist who's no longer with us, but it's what I had to learn. It's what I began to learn when I started to sit. How to desire within love. You know, because my experience was that desire was in conflict with love. Over and over it felt that way to me.
0: How did you experience that conflict?
4: Because I began to see that when I was deeply loved and felt safe, I would no longer desire. Mm. And I began to understand that the desire then wasn't really about loving or feeling loved. It was about something else. And then I saw that I was desiring women who did not treat me well. And then, you know, so then you wonder, is it even possible for the two to coexist, desire and love? I mean, this is all about me, right? Mm-hmm. I just in my own psyche. And
1: mm-hmm.
4: so I had asked myself that question, and I saw an instance where, you know, it was so clear that desire was aroused and had nothing to do with love. And, yeah, so that was just almost like a koan that I would ask myself, can it come through love? Can love come through it?
0: Mm. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the
4: show. <laughs> thank you, Tonio. Thank you for being such a receptive reader.
0: Well, thank you for writing this amazing <laughs> book. And this has been such a blast talking with you. Yeah. I always enjoy talking with I mean, you. yeah, me too. Yeah. I've been talking with Lisa Weil, and her new book that we've been talking about is In Search of Pure Lust. And thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. back.
3: of every boy and girl Come back as Rama Forgive us for what we've done Come back as Allah Come back as anyone Krishna ni begane Baro Krishna ni begane Baro Religion is the reason The world is breaking up into pieces Color of the people Keeps us locked in hate Please release us So come down and help us Save all the little ones They need a teacher And you are the only one We can rely on To build a better world well that's for children Oh well that's for everyone Krishna nee bagane Baro Krishna nee bagane Baro Come back